Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast with Dr. David O. Ogaga. Let's quickly continue with the study on the two witnesses. I mean, Revelation 11, starting from verse 3. Uh, this is part 3 of this study. So, let's just read through our scriptures. Revelation 11, reading from 3, 4, and 5. Than to eight. That's what we're going to the main text anyway. And the Bible says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hold them, fire proceeded out of their mouth and devoured their enemies. And if any man will hold them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut down heaven that it rain not in the days of your prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smile the earth with a plague as often as they will. And when they shall have finished your testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead body shall lie in the street of the great city, which is real, is called Sodom, and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay, uh, just a little summary of that uh, part of what I've been dealing with. I said two witnesses. If you look at two witnesses, you have two olive trees going together from that passage. And then the two olive trees is simply, like I said before, Olive has to do with where the anointing comes from. Is that okay? So two olive trees simply stands for two anointed persons. Is that all right? Praise the Lord. Okay. And uh, in Revelation 1 verse 20, we already understand what the candlestick stands for. So Revelation 1 verse 20, the Bible says, The mystery of the seven stars with the sores in my right hand and in the seven golden candlesticks. I mean, and the seven candlesticks. These seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks with the sores are what? Seven churches. All right? So when we're dealing with candlesticks, we know it speaks about the church. Is that okay? Hallelujah. And um, olive tree, like I said, has to do with anointing. Is that okay? Right. The oil was coming from the olive tree. So, talking about olive tree, two olive tree means two anointed persons. Very simple. Just get that. Let me give you an illustration of that or a simple word on that. Psalm 52. Psalm 52. On the word olive tree. For you to know that I'm speaking about people. Psalm 52, verse 8. As it were, like David speaking, says, But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Can you get that? Yeah. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I shall be in the house of God full of spiritual vigor, bringing forth evergreen leaves and honor fruit as the olive tree does when planted. In the proper soil. That's what he's talking about. I'm trying to explain what he's saying. I'm like olive tree in the house of God. And the, the olive tree brings forth fruit, brings forth its own um, 
leaves, I mean, it blossoms. Amen? Praise the Lord. All right. So, what he's actually trying to say here is, I'm going to prosper in the house of God. So, I, I read this to just indicate to you that olive trees stands for people. So, when you say two olive trees, it means I'm talking of two anointed people. And like I explained prior to this, the two anointed persons, like we look at Elijah and uh, Moses, represent the apostle and the prophet. We dealt with that last week. Remember that? Okay. Praise the Lord. So, go back to Revelation 11 and then verse number 7. Let's deal with a few things tonight. Um, these are just like keys as well that will enable you to go into some other studies. And uh, so I may probably shut down tonight, otherwise there are still a few, one or two things to talk about. But I'm just going to be mentioning some things, which on your part, if you read the book, you can be able to explain and use some other passages. Verse 7 says, when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Amen? When they shall have finished, what does that mean? It's like when they shall fulfill what they were supposed to say. Is that okay? Their testimony came to an end. They've come to a conclusion. It's like Paul would say, I'll finish my course. Is that all right? Good. They were able to declare what they needed to declare at that particular time. When they shall have finished, as it were. All right? So, first of all, let me deal with the issue of the beast. Um, I said the beast ascended out of the bottomless. What beast are you talking about? Often and again, that's why when we started, I made us to understand when you look at the book of Revelation, you shouldn't be looking at literal things, literal things. So you see trees, you're looking at trees, you see maybe grass, you're looking at grasses and stuff like that. You know, you don't interpret the book that way. So when we say beast, what do we mean? For instance, beast has said out the bottomless pit. Absolutely, this has to do with a kind of an antichrist. And when we use the word antichrist, we're talking about an opposing force. Okay, let me give you a simple definition. If you say anti-malaria, what does that mean? Something that fights against malaria. Am I right? Hey, are you with me? Something that opposes malaria, anti-malaria, anti-drug, anti, anti. It's the same thing. So, antichrist, in the true sense, is not just one person. It is anything that opposes truth. Anything that opposes light. Anything that opposes the life of Christ from being manifested is antichrist. Is it simple? Hey, why are you looking at me like that? Are you getting it? So, that's, that's the simplest way for you to understand it. Anti-malaria. Anti this, anti that. You know what that stands for? What opposes. Alright. So, here we're looking at a system that is opposing Christ. Because it's a system that opposes, or that's opposing the truth they are proclaiming. That is that kind of rising to oppose those truths that they are proclaiming. Is that Okay. Alright, so we're talking of something that is powerful, that opposes the genuine Christianity. 
something that's opposing genuine Christianity, something that's opposing truth. That is what anti stands for. So when we're talking about the beast, it's not just talking about an animal. All right? Let me give you one or two scriptures on that. Titus chapter 1. Let's read from verse 10. Book of Titus. The way the word beast is used, so that you know that we're talking about people, uses power to oppose the life of God. Anything that stands against truth. Verse 10. Are you there? For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. How many of you understand what circumcision means? Huh? He's talking about the Jewish people. Those who are still following the law. Huh? Okay. Whose mouth must be stopped? Who subvert all houses? Teaching things which ought not for faithful locker's sake. You know, for money's sake, they teach things which they ought not to teach. So the purpose or the aim of their teaching is to make money. Now, verse 12. What did he say? One of themselves, even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. You together? Hey, are you seeing it? So he's talking about the people. So when he said the beasts arose to, uh, to oppose, I'm not talking about an animal, not talking about one specific antichrist. At any particular time, people that oppose his truth, here we're talking about the circumcision, which means those who stand to carry the laws of Moses and use it to oppose the genuine Christianity. They are referred to as what? The beast. Are you following? Okay, one more scripture on that. First Corinthians 15. So when you start reading the beast arose out of the sea, then you'll be thinking about one animal, one antichrist that's going to come one day. No, it's not talking about that. At any particular time, you see this beast system keep on rising to challenge or to oppose or to try to destroy the truth that has been proclaimed. Is that all right? First Corinthians 15, look at verse 31. Paul speaking. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of man, I have fought with Beast in Ephesus. What advantage me if the dead rise not? Let us not eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So what I want you to see here is, I fought with the beast in Ephesus. He wasn't fighting with tigers and crocodiles. Did you get that? He was fighting or wrestling with people that were opposing the truth in Ephesus. Are you getting that? So it's like when he was speaking or preaching in Ephesus, people were there to persecute him. So the beast is always persecuting truth. And of course, who was Apostle Paul? I mean, who was Paul? An apostle. So we said now, the beast was rising to oppose the truth that was coming from the apostles and the prophets. And anywhere you find the true prophet, the true apostle rise up and proclaim truth, you're going to see the beast rise up. Praise the Lord. 
You follow it? So that's what Paul is saying. My struggle was not against some animals in the forest or something. Basically, if you trace the scripture all through, you find that most people that the Bible referred to as the beast were the Jewish system, which is a religious system. Praise the Lord. So we see that the beast is often a group of people that often stands against the truth of the gospel. Are we correct? Are you there with me? Yeah. So when you say beast, don't be looking at some animals. Don't be looking at someone antichrist with two horns and like the way they have portrayed it before. The, the antichrist is going to have two horns or maybe seven eyes or something. Paint all kind of funny scripture for you and you call that antichrist. No, 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 no. The antichrist is any system which is the beastly system, as a matter of fact, that stands to oppose the truth of the gospel of Christ, wherever it is preached. At any point in time, any opposing spirit is the beast. Hallelujah. I said hallelujah. One, 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 other, way I can define, one other way I can define the beast is this. You see, the church is the body of Christ. You know that? The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And the church reveals Christ. You get that? The church revealed himself through his body. Is that okay? So just as the church is the body of Christ, so also the beast is the body of Satan. Are you catching this? It's a system that opposes the light. And it's always a people's group. It's people that are believing into one particular thing that opposes the truth of the gospel of Christ. So just like you have the body of Christ to be the church, you have the beast to be the body of the devil. Does it make sense? Hallelujah. Okay. All right. Um... Let's look at something here. Second Corinthians 1. Talking about wrestling in Asia as well. Let's look at this. Second Corinthians 1 verse number 8. You there? For we will not, brethren, have you ignorant of our troubles which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we have the center of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which reserved the dead. And he said, who deliver us from so great a trouble of death and doth deliver, in whom we also trust that we yet deliver us. Ye also have together by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many, what? On our behalf. This scripture has to do also with the wrestling. In other words, remember, the scripture we read in the book of Revelation says, after they gave their testimony, they were killed. Did you get that? So here Paul is making a similar statement. It's like they kill us every day. And we rise up again. Is that okay? That's the first scripture we read. So it's like we're suffering hardship and difficult times in the hands of these people here in Asia. It came to a point where it's like 
I feel like hanging myself. Strong opposition against the apostolic spirit that he carried. Frustrating. You have to understand the word. After the testimony, they were killed. Killing does not necessarily in this sense mean they died physically. But like Paul was trying to say here, it's like, man, we were so frustrated in the gospel of preaching in Asia. By reason of the opposition, like even the one you find in Ephesus. Are you getting it now? So it could be very frustrating. So such a thing could be regarded as being killed. You, 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 you kind of lost the joy of being a minister. And sometimes you finish ministering, people come around and begin to say all manner of things against you. So that people would not even believe, even those who seem to have believed you first time, who want to turn against you. So you've been killed daily. Life has been destroyed. Hallelujah. Okay. And then again we said, reading that scripture inside the Bible says, um, I get this. Let's get down to verse 8. Let's get on to verse 8. No, that's Revelation, I mean. Revelation uh, 11 now, verse number 8. Now, verse 7, they said they were killed. Is that okay? And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom, and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Amen? Okay. So now, what city is this? Like I said, last week, sometimes people said this is Rome. And uh, other, you know, conjectures, let me put it, keeps coming in. But for me, this is Jerusalem. I'm going to make you see that from scriptures. Amen? The great city is not Rome. The great city is not the Catholic Church. Okay. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Let's deal with something a little bit. Where was Jesus crucified? Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 verse 12. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, so far without the gate. What gate? Okay, you go to the message translation on this. Let's see. Message translation, Hebrews 13, verse 12. Is the same with Jesus. He was crucified outside the city gates. That is where he poured out the sacrificial blood that was brought to God's altar to cleanse his people. Can you get that? What city gates? Jerusalem. Now watch this. The Bible says in verse 8 of Revelation 11 that he was crucified. First of all, he said the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt where our Lord was crucified. 
So where is our Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that precisely. Okay. Turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Scripture says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. Notice, Judah and Jerusalem. I mean, if you can understand why he's using this language. Remember? The division of the kingdom between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Can you still remember? First Kings. All right. Now, move to verse 10. This prophecy or this vision concerns Judah and Jerusalem. Go to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God. Ye people of Gomorrah. Who is he talking to? Judah and Jerusalem. Can you get that? Now, Revelation, remember, Revelation is that great city. Which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. So, looking at the scripture here, which city is called Sodom? Judah and Jerusalem. Are you getting that? Good. Remember the Bible said, I swear the Lord was what? Crucified. So, when we're talking about Sodom, we're not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. We're... And I'll try to explain this to you. Sodom and Gomorrah typifies sin. Is that alright? Good. Egypt typifies what? Bondage. So get this right. The law was crucified in Sodom and in Egypt. Is that okay? I will explain when we come to Egypt. But are you picking this? Why the Lord is referring to, to Jerusalem and Judah, Sodom and Gomorrah? Are you, can you picture it? Because number one, the law, scripture says by the law is the knowledge of sin. Is that okay? Now, they've come to the place of complete religion. Let me put it that way. You know, the Judaism is it's religion. And it's religion that opposes the life of Christ. Hallelujah. It is truly religion that crucified Jesus. Scripture says, if the prince of this world had known, they would not have crucified a lot of glory. Who's the prince of this world? It's not the devil. <laughs> is that Okay. When the scripture used that in 1 Corinthians, it's not talking about the devil. It's talking about the prince who has to do with the rulers of the people. Who are the people that crucified Jesus? 
Was it the devil that crucified Jesus? It was the priest. They came together and take counsel against the Lord and his anointing. Hallelujah. And they crucified him. Okay. Let me show you one more scripture on this. Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, verse 46. And thy elder sister is Samaria, she and her daughter that dwell at the left side, and thy younger sister that dwelleth at the right side is Sodom and her daughters. Is it clear? What you tell Samaria? This one, the same thing we read in Isaiah 1 is what we are reading here. Samaria is the capital, remember that? To the northern kingdom. Judah is the capital of the southern kingdom. Are you getting it now? Praise the living God. And so that's why Jesus had to go to the Samaritans. But you must understand that they were supposed to be the two making up the kingdom of, of God, in quotes. But right from the time of Solomon, when he died, Jeroboam took two, Judah as his capital, and Jeroboam took to the north with Samaria as his capital. And Jesus came to reconcile Judah and Samaria. So when you call the Samaritans, you are talking about the other faction, the other half of the kingdom of Israel that was divided. Are you still there? And remember, they went into idolatry by serving other gods. So, those who are Jews do not have anything to do with them. And Jesus came and gave illustration of the man that fell on the road to Jericho. Have you read that? When you're talking about who is your neighbor? He now gave you an illustration of the man who was going to Jericho and then he fell among robbers. And then he now said, the priest came and passed by. The Levite came and passed by. And a Samaritan came or a Samaritan came and took the man and treated him and took him to an inn and he said, when I'm coming back again, just take care of this man. Whatever it costs me when I come, I will pay. Then the question was, who is the man's neighbor? So the man's neighbor becomes what? The Samaritan. And now, the Samaritans were not the Levite, they were not the priest. The priest and the Levite were from Judah. They were the one holding onto the law. Are you getting what I'm saying now? That is what he used that parable to teach. In other words, the Samaritan stands a better chance of even doing good things and better things than you who is carrying on religion. Can you get it? That is the meaning of that parable. Okay. So, here he says, again, and that other sister is Samaria. Samaritans now. She and her daughters that dwell at the left hand and the younger sister that dwell at the right hand is Sodom and what? Her daughters. Which is Sodom? Judah. Can you get it now? Remember, 
what we're dealing with. The Lord was crucified in that great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Okay? Let's try to find out this Egypt matter here. Uh, one thing again with the word Egypt, like I said earlier on, it stands for bondage, slavery. Understand that. But you see, if you take time to study your Bible, you find that there comes a time, tell in the book of Isaiah, when the children of Israel were trying to go and get the Egypt to assist them to fight the battle. Is that alright? Good. And God hears that. So, I'm going to read a few scriptures, but understand this. If the Bible talks about the holy city, not great city now, holy city, coming down out of heaven. Have you read that? Revelation 21. I'm sure you read the Bible sometime, do you? It says, I saw the holy city descending out of heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. And that stands for the church. The church of Jesus Christ. Is that okay? Right. So, city. If holy city stands for the church, a wicked city will symbolize a false religion and an apostate church. Does it make sense? If the great, the holy city stands for church, which is the church of Jesus Christ, a great and wicked city will stand for a church or a religious organization that has fallen from faith. That is understanding for the truth of the word of God. So when we say the great city, then we're just talking of a religious organization or a church system that is opposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. Are you, are you, are you following what I'm saying here? Good. So, it's not just talking about the nation per se. That is why I do not subscribe so much to the interpretation that says the great city is speaking about Rome. No. You can say Roman Catholic Church if you want. But for me, the definition is so simple in the scripture. That Sodom speaks about Judah. Is that all right? From what we read in Isaiah 1 and Ezekiel 16, Speaks about Judah. So let's look for Egypt, for instance. Again. The word we read there. Now, take it back again. Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 8 again. I want you to see that. And the dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Not Sodom in terms of two. The same city is called Sodom and Egypt. Did you, did you get that? That is why I said you should read it again. The same city is what is called Sodom and Egypt. So that same city carried two identities. Is that okay? All right. Okay. So now let's get down. But already we've discovered what Sodom stands for. Is that okay? Let's discover what Egypt stands for. 
Like I said before, I said Egypt stands for bondage. So let's take a scripture in the book of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Let's look at verse 20. Galatians 4. Are you there? Verse 20. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice for I stand a doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Which these are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. The one from my Sinai, which gendered toward bondage, which is Hegai. For this Hegai is my Sinai in Arabia, and answered to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Can you get that? So, with Jerusalem, what does Jerusalem that now is stands for? It stands for the law. The law of Moses. Tradition. Religion. Can you get that? So he's saying those who are under the religious system of Judaism, they are in bondage with her children. And if bondage stands for Egypt, it simply means Jerusalem the now is is Egypt. Are we together? So when the scripture says, the dead body lie in the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, then of course you know what we're talking about. Spirit of sin and iniquity, which has to do with the law and the religion of Jewish people, which is Hagar. Which is Jerusalem that now is and is in bondage with her children. Is it simple? Hallelujah. Are you seeing anything? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yeah. I'm taking my time and I'm sure I'm not speaking too fast. So you should understand what I'm saying. Amen. Okay. So that is just the point. So now. Like I've always said, you must come to the place where you realize that you're not just talking to some people far away. You have to apply the things you know and the things you're reading even to yourself. How do you become Sodom and Egypt today? Through religious spirit that opposes the life of Christ. Is that okay? Let me give you a scripture so that you can understand this. Though, here again, the Jews were being addressed. But let's go to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 4. Hebrews 6, verse number 4. Praise the Lord. Look at this. Now, Hebrews was written in AD, between AD 63 and 67. That is some 
from three years or so before the fall of Jerusalem. Is that okay? Yeah. You know, Jerusalem fell in AD 70. Remember that? Okay. So if this book is written around that AD, between 63 and 67, so we're looking about some three years before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And this book was addressed to Hebrew Christian believers. Anytime you read in the book of Hebrews, you see that it was a letter that was trying to explain the difference between Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, priesthood of Aaron, priesthood of Melchizedek. It's just a comparison of the two. Old covenant, new covenant. Are you following me? This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's a comparison of the two priesthood, royal priesthood, or Levitical priesthood, and the Melchizedek priesthood, my Sinai, and my Zion. Amen. Okay, now, let's look at Hebrews 6, 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the power of the age to come. I say the power of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify. Remember Revelation 11 verse 8. If they should crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him toward an open shame. For the earth will drink under the rain that cometh often upon it and bringeth forth hairs meat for them. But women is dreads receiveth blessing from God. But that quit beareth tongues and prayers is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be what? To be burnt. What do you think God is talking about here? What do you think Paul is saying here? He's speaking to the Hebrew people. You have tasted of the Holy Spirit. You, you've, you've seen the power of God in signs and wonders and miracles as you receive from the Holy Spirit after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Are you still there with me? If you turn away from that which you have received, you're going back to legalism. You're going back to tradition. What else are you doing? You are crucifying the Son of God, our flesh, even in the flesh. In other words, you are rejecting what he has done. And he said, if you start rejecting him, then there is nothing left for you because when you reject him, the next thing you are going to produce is tons and thistles. So what would be the next thing for such a field to receive or for God to do to such a field? Nigh unto burning. And so what does that mean? You're getting ready for destruction, A.D. 70. Can you get that now? So this was like a warning to the Christian believers, the Hebrew Christian believers, that you don't need to go back to religion. You go back to Judaism, you're going to face the same problem that will come in A.D. 70. 
you are that ground that is drinking of the rain from heaven. And its expectation is you produce fruit, not thorns and thistles. What fruit are you supposed to be producing? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4. Make Galatians 5 now. Hmm? Joy, peace, love, long-suffering, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness. Are you getting that? You're supposed to produce the fruit of the Spirit because that is what you have received after the Holy Ghost is coming to you. You see, what Paul is saying here is like what he said to the Galatian church. I say, oh, ye foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Have you started in the Spirit and you ended in the flesh? What is the flesh? The flesh is not talking about the body. The flesh is dealing with religion. That which is born of the flesh, the flesh, that which is born of the spirit, the spirit. We need to understand what flesh. It's not just talking about that which is born of the human being. That which is born of Judaism is Judah. Judaism is religion. Because he was speaking to somebody who was a rabbi. John 3, he was talking to a rabbi. He was talking to a doctor of the law. And he said, you must be born again. So I cannot be born again. Say, he that is born of the flesh, he that born into Judaism is of Judaism. He is that born of the spirit is the spirit. <laughs> Are you seeing that? Praise the Lord. So he said, if you are born of the spirit and you were Jew, you don't need to go back because if you go back, you are going to produce tongues and tissues. And the next thing that will happen to you is that field will be burnt. So if you go back to Judaism, get ready for what comes up on AD 70. That's what he was telling them. Are you sitting there with me? How does that apply to you? The word of God is yesterday, today, and forever. If you've come to the place of light, you go back to that which is not light, the next thing that comes out of you also can be referred to as tons and thesis. Okay, let's take this from message translation. Hebrews 6 verse 4. I like it this way. Once people have seen the light, gotten a taste of heaven, what does it mean to taste heaven? When you have the Holy Spirit, you taste the heaven. Gotten a taste of heaven and be part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Once they personally experience the sheer goodness of God's word and the powers breaking in on us, if then they turn their backs on it, washing their hands off of the whole thing, well, they can't start all over as if nothing happened. That is impossible. Why? They are re-crucifying Jesus. Are you seeing that? They have repudiated him in public. Patch ground that soaks up the rain and then produce an abundance of carrot and corn for his gardener, gets well done. But if he produces wheat and thistles, it's more likely to get cast out. Feasts like that are born, not harvested. You get the picture? So here God is addressing the children of Israel, believers who have seen light who have seen truth, who come to the place of absolute understanding. And they want to turn back 
to Judaism. God is saying, you are getting out of the realm of producing carrots and good things for God. What you're coming to produce now is weed and teasers. And the only thing left for the owner of the field to do is to burn out the field. So one of the ways we attract God's judgment to our life is to produce thorns and teasers. Meaning, the spirit that is coming upon your life, the word you receive it, was supposed to enable you to produce the fruit that God can harvest. Because there are only two things that can be done. It's either the field is going to be harvested or the field is going to be burned. And any field that could not produce corn, I mean, carrots and good seed for the Lord, what would the owner of the vineyard do? He's going to burn it. Amen? Praise the Lord. Is anybody catching it? So, the scene of Egypt here is the putting in bondage the power of the Holy Spirit which speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So he now says, in that city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, meaning Christ is being crucified through you forsaking the truth that you have received into a religious system instead of following the light. He said, men who have received light and the Holy Spirit has come upon them, if they should turn away, it's impossible to renew them. You know what that really stands for? Sometimes when you forsake truth, you think you have the best so that you don't even listen again when somebody's talking to you. It's more difficult for somebody who left faith to be converted as compared to men that have never been in faith. Do you understand that? They will just tell you, oh, come on, we've been there before. We've seen it all. We know it all. Forget. It's difficult. But know that it's impossible. Because I believe that somewhere along the line, men can still repent. Amen? But the Lord is saying, if you have received light, don't waste your time going back to religion. You will produce nothing but thorns and thistles. And such a ground is really set for cursing and by the Lord Himself. Unfruitfulness is as a result of we backing from the light and the truth that we have received. Praise the Lord. Amen. Okay, let's take a little scripture, Revelation 11 again. Like I said, I'm going to end this one today and you listening to this and we'll enable you to read and get some light. Anytime I come to eschatology, I'll just give you keys that will enable you to open up other scriptures. Is that okay? <laughs> we have a long, long, long way to go, a lot of things to study, so I'll just pick it up bit by bit. Revelation 11 verse 3. Uh, is that what I'm looking at? Okay. Deal with this a little bit. And I'll give power unto yeah, my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. Now, a thousand two hundred and three score days is the same period as 40 and two months, like you find in Revelation 11, verse 2. The same thing. Though expressed in a different form. Yeah, the reckoning is a day for a year. And this period will be between 
260 years. Or as the same, you find in the book of Daniel. Turn to Daniel. Let me show you something. Daniel chapter 7 verse 23. The same thing. Daniel 7, 23, 25 rather, I'm sorry. Daniel 7, 25. Look at what it says. And it shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. I want you to know that wear out, that means somebody's rising on that, going to weaken them. When somebody's worn out, you're losing faith. Is that okay? Shall so wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given unto him Unto his hand, unto time and times, and the dividing of time. That is the same thing you find there, which is 260 years. It's the same thing when you check it out. That is the way it is used in the book of Daniel. So it is like a period of trials and a period that certain things are supposed to be going on against the saints. So when you read that scripture there, look at it again, Revelation now. It says, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall provide 1,203 score days clothed in sackcloth. So that's the period in which the own prophecies is going on, meaning the time of this teaching. But remember, the Antichrist then will rise, or the beast, to fight against them. Is that all right? Praise the Lord. All right. I'm trying to see if I can really get through with this. Ah. Oh. Okay, now, 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 back to Revelation again. Let me show you Revelation chapter 11. Let's start reading from verse 1, if possible. I'll show you something now. Look at this. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, that the angels stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Follow this very critically. But a court which is without the temple, live out and measure it not. For it's given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Same period defined there. Huh? Now the holy city here is Jerusalem. Yeah, we're talking about the Roman soldiers now. Measurement has to do with the area that we preserve. Are you following it? Good. The Holy City of Jerusalem symbolizing the church then, which is about to be persecuted by the beast, which is the Roman Empire now. The temple of God, which is major, is a sign that it will be spared. He said, leave all the other call. Measure just the temple. Spare the temple as it were. Hallelujah. Symbolizing those who will remain faithful to Christ. These are simply called remnants. If you go to the book of Ezekiel chapter, chapter 9, you're going to find the same principle. And the Bible says, put a mark upon the forehead of those who sigh for the sins of Jerusalem. Is that okay? And that when the destroyer comes by, when they see the sign upon those people, it will leave them. He said, but start from the nobles, from the elders, kill from the elders. But those who have the sign on their forehead that sigh for the sins of Jerusalem, leave them out. That's the measurement. So when he said, measure the temple, he's talking about who are the faithful ones who can escape. But the area that will not be measured, he said that we tread down underfoot for what? 40 days. 
Can you get it now? So it's a period of judgment, and it's like saying, these three witnesses will make proclamation almost the same period that this is going to go on. Truth will go forth. When truth is rejected, judgment comes, as it were, to Jerusalem. But you see, after Jesus has spoken, mighty 24, the disciples came and began to proclaim the word, and then, as it were, like I keep on telling you, it took almost about 40 years again before the judgment finally came. And within that period, the truth has gone forth, persecution taking place, the book of Acts has already come to be, and stuff like that. In other words, God gave them a long period of time to repent, to avoid the judgment that was going to come to the Roman soldiers. Are you following that? So it's the same picture we're seeing here. So when he said the two witnesses were making proclamation and prophesying at this particular period, it's like saying the spirit of the apostles or the prophets were going forth to warn the people against the invented judgment that was going to come as prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 25, 24. You get the picture right? Good. But it's like saying they died, the body was lying in the holy city. In other words, remember the persecution that was coming to Peter and the rest of those people? It's like they died. But again, like I said before, it's like they shot them and they will rise again. They bring them down, they will rise again. You can kill truth. Hallelujah. Come on, are you there with me? So this is the picture we are seeing here. So again, in summary, we are saying the two witnesses are basically the spirit of the apostle and prophets. And the prophesying has to do with the teaching of the apostles and prophets, revealing the mystery of Christ, bringing the body of Christ to another level from religious system. And we're saying the beast that rose to fight against them has to do with the religious system. And we're saying the great city is Jerusalem, which is called Sodom and Egypt. And we say Sodom and Egypt represent sinful lifestyle, which is also the power of the law. Because the Bible says, without the law, there is no sin. Can you get that? Right. And Egypt speaks of bondage. And we know the Bible says, Jerusalem did not eat. It's a bondage with what? Her children. So summarily, the whole picture is talking about Jerusalem. And so when you get down to verse 1 of the same passage of Revelation 11, it's absolutely clear. Measure only the temple, the article, live out. And the Gentiles will come and trade down those people that are not measured. In other words, only the remnant that are spared shall be spared or saved when the Roman armies comes into what? Into Jerusalem. Those who believe the word that the apostles and prophets were speaking, these are the people that will be spared. Others will go by religious system. The Jerusalem, the Roman soldiers come in and does what? And kill them. And that is properly explained to us. For you and I, the Bible is saying, you can see truth and go back to religion. You produce nothing but what? Tons and thistles. And the only thing left for such a very grand of field before the hand of the Lord is cursing and what? Burning. Praise the Lord. For further information and message order, please call plus 234-803-481869. Or you can visit our website at www.gkai.net. God bless you.